this week on the Back Table Podcast. Just by definition, radiologists are in a position to learn transgender identity and to be models, you know, both in themselves and for colleagues about, oh, look at this. We may need to look at the records. We may need to go clarify something with the patient sensitively, sensitively, sensitively. Discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, it is forbidden. It has been forbidden for a long time. A lot of systems just don't know this. Although Section 1557 and the Joint Commission both heavily publicized the fact that there is this ban. You can have a million policies, you can have a million well-intended bans, but unless you do education in a real way, with actual healthcare providers. I actually am famous for saying, you know, in a, a paraphrase of Duke Ellington, policies, they don't mean a thing without that training, whether it's what you seek out for yourself or whether it's what's provided to you in continuing education or grand rounds and such at your hospital. Well, hello everyone. Uh, I am Vishal Kumar. Uh, I will be today's uh, guest host for the Backtable podcast. I want to thank Aaron Fritz and the rest of the Backtable podcast team to allow us the space and time for these conversations. I am very fortunate to practice as an interventional radiologist at the University of California, San Francisco, as well as its affiliate hospital, San Francisco General Hospital, which is both the safety net hospital for our community and a level one trauma center. UCSF Health has been named an LGBTQ healthcare equality leader by the Human Rights Campaign Foundation. And according to the 15th issue of Health Equity, published by the Human Rights Campaign Foundation, San Francisco General Hospital received a high score of 100 and received LGBTQ healthcare equality leader title. And the index is the nation's foremost benchmark score for healthcare facilities, reflecting the level of equal treatment and inclusion of LGBTQ patients in healthcare facilities. San Francisco General Hospital also offers a community that we serve, a transgender clinic. But I know that the system, as well as myself, uh, that we work in are far from perfect. And I have often seen us fail, uh, and despite best intentions, in creating an environment that ultimately becomes unwelcoming for many of our LGBTQ patients. Uh, I am very, honored and privileged to work at UCSF, where our Department of Radiology has taken on these issues firsthand and under the leadership of Dr. Matt Buckner, in 2020 invited Shane Snowden, uh, an expert in this space, uh, to speak to us about optimizing care for LGBTQ patients. And it was one of the most instrumental, I think, talks in helping shape how I approach my patients and how I just be a better doctor for them. Shane Snowden heads the LGBTQ Health and Aging Program of the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest LGBTQ civil rights organization. She previously founded and led the Center for LGBT Health and Equity at the University of uh, California, San Francisco for 14 years as the nation's only LGBT office in a healthcare or health education setting. She has provided LGBT health training and consulting for hundreds of hospitals, health professional schools, and other health organizations throughout the country. Her groundbreaking work has received extensive recognition, including the Health Achievement Award of the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, the Transgender Law Center Ally Award, the National Gay and Lesbian Press Association Award for Cultural Reporting, the KQED Local Hero Award, and the University of California Award for Exceptional University Service and Award for GLBT Leadership. Shane, thank you so much for joining us today. Vishal, thank you so much for that introduction. It is great to be back with you. And I just want to mention a couple of things about the introduction before we delve into the issues. One is that um, I was at UCSF, as you say, for a number of years uh, at the co-founded, not co-founded, founded the National Center for LGBT Health and Equity. I then did go to the Human Rights Campaign and did uh, found and oversee the Health and Aging Program. I left that uh, several years ago. I left HRC and since then have been consulting to um, health systems, individual hospitals, outpatient facilities, medical and nursing schools, especially on LGBTQ plus issues especially now focusing on 
faith-affiliated organizations, uh, hospitals, and health systems in more seemingly conservative parts of the country, more rural parts of the country. So my work has, has shifted over time. And yet here in the year 2022, uh, as I know we'll be discussing, still there are many challenges facing LGBTQ people in the healthcare system. Only other thing I would add is that in addition to the very long-standing great clinic at the General in San Francisco for uh, transgender and gender-affirming care, UCSF has also a transgender care clinic headed by, a, uh, by Dr. Maddie Deutsch, also has a child and adolescent gender center co-headed by uh, pediatric endocrinologist Steve Rosenthal. So there, you know, one thing that we have seen over the last 10 to 20 years in healthcare is the development and a whole range of hospitals and healthcare systems of gender-affirming care that has been incredibly exciting to see. Well, thank you again, Shane, for joining us. You mentioned some of the challenges that LGBTQ patients face, and I think there are multiple layers of intersectionality that affect some even further beyond just the standard LGBTQ biases and um, you know limitations or barriers to care. Could you maybe spend a few moments to enlighten us on what specifically those limitations or inequities are for that community. Yes, it's interesting. I think when LGBTQ healthcare first came to public attention or attention within health generally, it was around HIV AIDS. We are a people, LGBTQ plus people, who have been very, very entwined with healthcare crises, and healthcare in general, and HIV-AIDS really brought that into focus. There we were, a long-standing, stigmatized group of people, gay men in particular, all of a sudden, all of a sudden devastated by a mysterious, tragic illness. And so there are ways in which, although we think of the late 60s quite rightly as, as the time of the birth of LGBTQ uh, liberation and empowerment movements, in 1981, in 1981, only really a decade after we came to visibility, began to come out in personal settings, you know, not really through court cases, not through massive organizations, not through huge, mar huge marches. Yes, in that bar, Stonewall in New York City, but a lot through one-to-one -one comings out only a decade or so after we began to come out to claim our, I love this phrase, to claim an identity we had been taught to despise and to conceal. There we were deeply entwined with the healthcare and the health research systems around HIV AIDS, really a terrifying illness. And uh, my birth year is the birth year of the um, largest number of people, especially gay men who died from HIV AIDS. So very keenly aware of how all of a sudden, a decade after our, our, you know, our, our movement toward liberation, here we were facing a, a fatal disease in our, our various ways. And here we find ourselves now in the 2020s. Uh, there's a similar, very, very prominent set of issues involving us in healthcare, which of course is gender affirming care, uh, whether for adults or for youth. And there have, so there have been these two very public searing health concerns facing us. So there is HIV AIDS, there is the question of gender affirming care. Will it be provided by whom, with what support, with what insurance coverage? Those are the two issues that I think people think of right away in terms of LGBTQ healthcare. But the truth of the matter is that all LGBTQ people, when we go into outpatient and especially inpatient care, we face a set of challenges, some of which we share with other groups that have been historically discriminated against and stigmatized, some of which are our own. So deeply respecting the headline issues, and I don't mean that in any minimizing way, um, while I have focused a great deal, how could I not, uh, you know, as a lesbian who <laughs> grew up in a very different world, has been very entwined with our liberation. Um, I also think it's important, in addition to the headline issues, to talk about the everyday fears and challenges that we have as LGBTQ plus people going in. We are afraid still in the year 2022, that if in healthcare, particularly in inpatient care, where we are very vulnerable, I mean, obviously we're vulnerable because we have, you know, a, a, a more challenging, threatening uh, health condition, probably if we're inpatient, we're very vulnerable because of our condition 
And we're also very vulnerable because we are meeting person after person after person after person in a whole variety of hospital and inpatient roles who may or may not may or may not feel comfortable with us uh, or be knowledgeable about us or um, hmm, may have dealt at all with whatever biases they have about us. So these kinds of challenges that face all of us every day that I think we cannot afford to lose sight of are when we become known as LGBTQ+, when we become, become known as transgender, when we become known as having a same-sex spouse, when we become known as just having you know one of the letter identities, will that healthcare representative in whatever role, will that person treat us with the respect and the care, the concern that they treat people who are not LGBTQ+. If they see um, one same-sex partner or spouse bending over another in a time of health crisis and you know, taking their loved one's hand and saying, I love you, we will get through this. I love you, we will get through this, giving them a quick kiss, holding their hand. Will a healthcare provider who sees that, will they feel comfortable? Will they pull back? Will they have reservations? If they're introduced to a same-sex spouse or partner as they would be to a, a, a another sex spouse or partner, will that healthcare provider feel as comfortable as they did before they were introduced to that same-sex spouse or partner? Likewise, once it becomes known that a transgender patient at birth was assigned to sex different from their current gender identity. Once that becomes known, will that healthcare provider feel the same concern, feel as much comfort? Will that healthcare provider most basically get the gender and the name of that transgender patient right? Just as in the case of a same-sex couple, will they be able to say to a lesbian, oh, you're easily, oh, your wife was just here, or to a gay man, oh, your husband, was, was just asking about you and is down at the cafe. Are they in a million, these and other, a million other ways, are healthcare providers ready to approach us and care for us the way they would for people who are not LGBTQ+. I believe a lot of them are. I've spent the last 20 plus years talking and talking and talking with health professionals in training, people working in healthcare, especially inpatient care, at a lot of levels. And what I find is that they are very ready to feel more comfortable and feel more knowledgeable and extend a warm welcome. But our, our challenges are not well known beyond HIV, AIDS, and now gender-affirming care. A lot of healthcare providers in all rules just haven't thought about the kinds of things that could keep us LGBTQ plus people from seeking healthcare. And that's, that's the thing that concerns me the most, that if you're worried about what the effect will be of being out, of being known as LGBTQ+, even now there is a real chance that you will not seek care, you'll put off seeking care, you'll, I hate the word non-compliant, but you'll be less engaged in care because you're LGBTQ+. And we actually have data that we do as a group uh, delay healthcare more and have more concerns about going into healthcare just because of our LGBTQ plus status. So again, I want to acknowledge uh, the point that you're making that patients who identify as LGBTQ plus are avoiding or delaying care or receiving inappropriate or even inferior care because they experience discrimination due to perceived or real homophobia, biphobia, or transphobia. On the part of the healthcare providers and the institutions and structures in which they work, uh, and, you know, according to a 2016 uh, publication by the National LGBT Health Education Center, at least 5% of the U.S. population identify as LGBTQ. And as you said, many of uh, those people in the community suffer from effects outside of the healthcare system, are, have lower average incomes, lower rates of health insurance, worse access to healthcare. So I think many of these patients may find themselves depending on safety net hospitals and community hospitals that, you know, are placed uh, for those without insurance or for lower socioeconomic status. And Shane, you mentioned you work with so many providers who are eager and willing to do the work and to get it right. So what can providers do to get it right? How can we promote a culture of inclusion and one of 
gender-affirming care. Yeah, let me pick up on a few of the things you said. It's interesting you allude to homophobia and transphobia. And those are words that our mighty liberation and empowerment movement created and have invoked. I would say, though, and I think this is true of healthcare, and I think it's true of our society in general, those words phobia, there can be phobia, there can be fear, and we've seen the hideous results of that. The, the murders of LGBTQ, unto the murders of LGBTQ plus people. Phobia takes a lot of forms. It is my firm belief that while there are some people who we might consider uh, transphobic and homophobic, it is my firm belief, and I think we can see this in the enormous progress that's been made since the late 60s in our society around LGBTQ plus people, most people are not actually phobic, or if they are phobic, this is something that they can work within themselves. The vast majority of people in this country, I believe, just don't know very much about us. They have learned myths and stereotypes about us. They can learn more. They can undo those myths and stereotypes. Most people don't want to wander around in a haze of, you know, unknowing and myths and stereotypes. Most people don't. That's been my experience. I think it's been the experience of our movement since the late 60s. So I tend not to think of people primarily, the people with whom I work in healthcare, as, as phobic as much as people who potentially are quite open to learning more about us and, and doing right by us. I'd also say that while we do have serious issues still in the 2020s around delay of care and avoidance of care, those are still big issues. Also, when we go, do go into healthcare, we can experience a lot more stress. Um, for example, to avoid a situation where somebody has a negative, someone may feel like, oh, I'm an ally of LGBTQ plus people. Sure, you know, I am. I've read about them. I support marriage equality. Still, that person may not have walked into a room and seen a man kissing his husband before that husband goes down for life-threatening surgery. So I think that what can happen in that situation is that even those of us uh, who are very out in most other parts of our lives, when we go into healthcare, may not be as out or may not be out at all. It may just be, oh, we're just good friends in the case of a same-sex couple. So even when we do go into care, we can be more stressed as we negotiate, should I be out? Can I be out to you? If you walk in on us, is there going to be a problem? Do I need to somehow limit myself and go back to you know the 1950s in terms of how out I am? So I think while we do point to the delay and avoidance of care, there's also just that higher level of stress during the care. And after the care, we may be less thrilled about you know, going back and checking in as from a healthcare perspective, we should. I'd also mention, which I think is really interesting and important, that we are now uh, LGBTQ plus people according to the best polling we have, which is interestingly enough done by Gallup and then vetted by the Williams Institute at UCLA. The estimate in California, for example, and Vishal, you and I, I was at UCSF for many years. I know you're still there. In California, uh, among millennials, the estimate of the LGBTQ plus uh, population is over 15%. So among my generation, the estimate runs in about the 5% range. When we look at the millennials, it's about 15% nationwide and in California. When we look at the generation before uh, the millennials, we're looking at 9 to 10%. So we have, a depending on the age of the patient population, some very significant identification as LGBTQ+. And I think, again, uh, what's the strategy as you ask, you know, uh, what is the strategy for letting healthcare know you're going to be seeing more and more LGBTQ plus people. They're going to be more and more out. They are wondering, all of them, no matter what their age or, or their identity within the acronym, they're going to be wondering, how's this going to go for me as an LGBTQ plus person? And so what you can do as a provider is not just read, and this is, you know, this is necessary, of course, but I think not sufficient. Yes, you know, do read about LGD, LGBTQ plus people, you know, who we are, uh, basics about our, our lives. Read about not only our health disparities, which are considerable. The PRIDE study at Stanford is one source of great longitudinal study of LGBTQ plus people, health issues. They're a source of great information. Learn about our health disparities, but and also learn about what we're worried about and care. And the fact that if if after we come out to you, you are warm and go, ah, 
Thank you for sharing that. I know that's not always easy. Is there more you'd like to tell me about that? Is there anything you worry about? That that kind of response, you can know everything about health disparities, thanks to the Pride Study and other sources. You can know a lot about LGBTQ plus equality and movements and culture in our country. But if you don't necessarily know it, how would you know this if you're not LGBTQ plus? If you don't necessarily know what to say after we come out, how to be on the lookout for staff who may be feeling some discomfort and bias, particularly around transgender patients and gay male patients. Gay male patients still face particular heightened stigma, both around HIV status and I think around general stereotyping of gay men. This is not to say by any means that uh, the other letters in the acronym, lesbians, bisexual people, gender expansive, gender nonconforming, other folks do not face serious, serious issues. But according to the data, it is good as a healthcare provider to learn more about all of us and in particular to learn about gender affirming care, about transgender, gender non-affirming non-binary patients, and about men who have sex with men who may or may not identify as gay. There are a variety of just, you know, good communications techniques to be learned with us. What, what do you do after you misgender somebody? You know, the medical record, the EHR, the EMR isn't clear, as so many aren't still, about someone, someone's transgender status. What do you do after you mistakenly misgender a patient? This is, you, you refer to them by the sex assigned at birth or a previous name in their medical record. It's going, it may well happen. It may well happen. What do you do to recover? How do you in that moment assure that transgender patient? Oh, I am so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. Let me get this right. Tell me, tell me the gender you want recorded here. Let me make sure I've got the pronoun right. Let me make sure I've got your name wrong. If you apologize quickly and warmly and you, and you indicate you want to get it right, that's great. Unfortunately, of course, you know, being human beings, healthcare providers, uh, after making a mistake around gender or name, in the case of transgender care, gender affirming care, as humans feel embarrassed, want to pull away, I want to suggest maybe someone else go over and apologize. What's perfect in that situation is to do, of course, none of those things, but just to go over and say, let me get this right. What would you like me to put down? It will not be the first time that transgender patient has had someone ask for clarification. It happens. And if you are well-meaning and you are trying, things can go very smoothly. But this, this kind of training, this kind of instruction is, is different from health disparities, is different from hormone therapy dosages and monitoring, is different from uh, PrEP, PEP, and, and, and other related uh, gay men, bi men, men who have sex with men issues. These are the kinds of things you learn by, for example, accessing materials at PFLAG. Org, uh, parents, families, and friends of LGBTQ plus people, uh, where you can learn about how to communicate as warmly and comfortably as possible. Because a lot of the challenges we face in healthcare, in inpatient care, are challenges of communication, of reaching across bias and myths and stereotypes. Not necessarily phobia, although it can be there, but biases, myths, stereotypes, and a sheer lack of knowledge. Addressing that is, is really, really essential. I want to hit on a couple points that you mentioned, both about education, communication. Uh, one of the key takeaways from your 2020 presentation to our department was that it's okay to, to apologize. It's, it's expected to make mistakes and to recognize, as you said, your humanity, to go back to the conversation and say that you want to get it right. And the other part I think that we took away is that you should standardize asking about a patient's pronouns up front, much as we do in our HPI, so that you avoid those missteps in the future. And from an education perspective, according to a 2011 study, uh, there's only about five hours of LGBTQ instruction throughout medical education, which I think echoes much of the point you're making, that many providers are unprepared in terms of communication and that insecurity leads to a lack of effort because we're scared to make a mistake. So I really want to emphasize those communication techniques. Yeah, I think you're pointing to a few really important things. Once again, the uh, issue uh, of apologizing warmly and sincerely, this goes far beyond LGBTQ patients. I mean, we are a subject population in terms of apologies being needed. But this is something that healthcare in general struggles with, acknowledging affirming, apologizing. And uh, it's interesting to notice the ways in which some of the core LGBTQ issues are issues in, in healthcare generally that just pop up more with us and stigmatized groups and groups that aren't, aren't very well known. 
in the case, you know, I pointed to to what individual providers can do, and I, I want to go back to that. But let me just visit question that you implicitly raised in saying it just you may end up apologize essentially for apologizing for a system failure, which is that yes, the health records at the outset could indicate someone's LGBTQ plus status. And there are many ways in which healthcare systems could support healthcare providers in giving great care. And one is by giving LGBTQ plus patients, if they want it, the opportunity to be, to show up in the EHR, the EMR, or, or, you know, for some places still the written record as themselves. Not everyone will want to do that, but, but creating a policy and a practice of capturing that status if patients want to volunteer it. And that's the thing, changing the healthcare system as a healthcare provider, there's a lot, you know, you could do as an individual that a lot of people really welcome. I mean, tremendous number of healthcare providers say, wow, you know, I, I never knew that. I'm glad to know that. You know, if you deliver education in the right ways, people feel really happy to have, especially healthcare providers. Tell me more. Uh, delivered, you know, from on high, delivered in less than wonderful ways, uh, people can actually have an anti-reaction. But I think the dance within healthcare is that you have to have both changes in attitudes and communication and knowledge on the part of the individual healthcare provider, you also need to have uh, systems and policies that are also honoring of LGBTQ plus people. And, and one thing I'm really proud of is being involved for many years with, as you mentioned at the outset, uh, Michelle, the Healthcare Equality Index, which is a, a free assessment. It's unique. It's the only one in the country, the only one in the world is an assessment that a hospital can take to find out whether its policies and practices are LGBTQ supportive. So do we let this, this group of people self-identify? Do we have a non-discrimination policy for our LGBTQ plus patients and employees? Do we offer transgender health coverage to our employees? What kind of training do we offer staff? Because as you noted, I think it's, it's, it's tricky to ascertain exactly the amount of LGBTQ content in medical or nursing curriculum. It can vary tremendously by the location, literally the geographic location of the school, the culture of the school, and frankly, whether or not there are LGBTQ uh, people on the faculty who can uh, get this information out. So I think that the, it, while there are some, you know, obviously LGBTQ specific training that needs to be provided around uh, HIV AIDS, around gender affirming care, around our, our very much our significant health disparities, like our very much higher rates of tobacco use, alcohol use, depression, and anxiety. It's, there's a question not only of, you know, standalone LGBTQ plus material in the curriculum, but also the question of making sure LGBTQ people show up in all parts of the curriculum. So if there is, you know, that that unit on patient communication should absolutely take up communication with people who are or seem really different from you. And that generally does include LGBTQ plus people. So in the curriculum, we don't just want, you know, standalone, oh, here's, you know, here's the hour we're going to give to HIV AIDS, or here's the hour we're going to give to transgender hormone therapy. We need to be everywhere. We need to be in the standardized patient uh, scenarios. We need to be everywhere as a group that needs some attention just because people may not know enough about us, have had enough contact with us. So uh, both the formal and the informal curriculum, also supporting LGBTQ plus uh, trainees and students, that's great informal education. Just having enough LGBTQ plus people around is tremendously educational. And just to speak to, to radiology in particular, um, there are specialties that have been perceived, and I would emphasize perceived, as more or less friendly to LGBTQ plus people. And I think that some of the specialties, um, radiology has been identified, rightly or wrongly, as one, as have uh, a number of surgical specialties. These have been perceived as less welcoming to LGBTQ plus people. The result is that there are fewer LGBTQ plus people around just to provide that, you know, easy or usually easy informal education of their colleagues. And the EMR issue that I raised earlier, giving LGBTQ plus people the ability to identify if they want to at the outset that they are LGBTQ plus. This is, you know, such a help in radiology where, you know, I, I can't tell you how many times I have met with a radiology department and there has been con understandable confusion about, oh, I just walked into that patient's room. I had understood from the record that they were female. I walk into the room. They're presenting to me very clearly as male. 
what's happening here? Was there a record snafu, which is, you know, not uncommon, you know, especially in radiology, the texts go out and, uh, you know, are, are, are greeting people on the basis sometimes of a very hurried intake. Wait, was this a snafu in the records? Is what, What's going on here? Uh, so I think uh, there are particular concerns within radiology as within each specialty around LGBTQ plus needs. Well, Shane, hearing that about radiology being viewed or perceived uh, as a less welcoming medical specialty is truly heartbreaking, especially when you think about pipeline and recruitment efforts. If uh, future healthcare providers don't see themselves as providers in our specialty, we have an uphill battle to do better by our patients. And I want to personally, uh, you know, testify to having a system where our PACS a few years ago was pulling patient identity or gender identity at birth, uh, whereas our EMR was pulling current gender uh, identification. And there was a discordance there and it affected our rounds with that patient. Uh, again, despite our best intentions, we looked at the gender based on the PACS system incorrectly, you know, acknowledge the patient. We're not providing gender-affirming care. And it led to us uh, going back to the design of our PACs to make sure that tweak could be fixed. So again, as you said, despite best intentions, the system could be putting you in a situation where you unintentionally uh, deliver less than ideal care. And these can have drastic effects. I've seen the effects of microaggressions on patients' faces. It's it's traumatizing and it's terrible. They don't feel welcome in our practice. Well, I think that's you know such a good point, and and especially within radiology related specialties. Um, I mentioned a communication issue. Oh, I went in addressing this person, assuming this person was going to be what I saw here in their record, and oh, that it does not appear to be what they're presenting. What what's what's gone wrong here? But they're also, of course, uh, in terms of the uh, intake records, uh, it is particularly important that. Uh, people who are transgender feel safe uh, declaring uh, what they what sex they were assigned at birth and what their current gender identity is. It has implications for radiology. Anytime you are using a laboratory baseline that differs by gender, by sex, across medicine, there are many points where it is crucial to know what was the sex assigned at birth for anesthesiology, for radiology, for lab comparisons, as well as site of birth and current generality, as well as for communication purposes. They're both important. It's interesting. In LGBTQ care, we're talking about some real hardcore medical concerns. Are we using the proper baseline for this individual as they go under anesthesia, for example? And then there are also a whole set of communications issues. Uh, how will people feel about us? How will they respond to us? Will we seem less than fully human after we become known as LGBTQ plus so medical issues and communications. I think what can happen sometimes is communications issues only can be lifted up, misgendering, misnaming, not taking in that, oh, that man is that other man's husband. There are a lot of communications issues that are important there, and there are a number of medical issues that are important. And we can't afford just to attend to one set or the other. I mean, when I give talks, I don't only talk about health disparities in the medical. And I don't only talk about communications issues. These are two wings of the bird of knowledgeable, welcoming care for LGBTQ plus people. I think this is, whether it's the medical school, nursing curriculum, whether it's training after that or continuing education and education within hospitals, both of those need to be attended to. You can't just focus on, on one or the other, the medical or communication. Both of them are critical with us. So in addition to communication techniques, recognition of the EMR and the PAC systems, what else can providers, office spaces do to create a sense of welcoming? Do you recommend placement of brochures, uh, material that has mission statements or dedications, commitments to LGBTQ healthcare? Yeah, one one reason I love the Healthcare Equality Index, and I am going to shamelessly plug it, as I say, it's free. It's administered by the uh, Human Rights Campaign Foundation. It's been around since 2007, created by healthcare providers. It is updated continually. Many of the, it, it's a set of dozens of recommendations for a hospital about being LGBTQ welcoming. So if your hospital does not take the HEI, and it's at hrc.org slash HEI, it's easy, easy to find. If your hospital doesn't take it or doesn't score well on a 100-point scale, 100 obviously being the highest, wow, 
as a healthcare provider, in addition to whatever individual um, learning you do, uh, look into the index, look into whether your hospital is taking it or is considered taking it or is doing well enough on it. There are dozens of recommendations in there, and some of them are for policies, the non-discrimination policies for employees and for patients. Some of them are what services are you providing? And some of them, as you're saying, Vishal, are putting out symbols that a healthcare system may think may doubt the efficacy of, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're telling, you're telling us that just having a little plexiglass rack with some rainbow striped, the, the new improved rainbow that's inclusive of, of trans, non-binary, and black, and brown, and other identities of color. You're telling us that having a brochure and a plexiglass rack that's got the, the new expanded rainbow flag, that that would be meaningful and welcoming? That um, putting up in the lobby our non-discrimination statement that's inclusive of sexual orientation and gender identity and expression, you're telling us that would be something. Who even reads those non-discrimination statements in the lobby or on the website? Who notices, you know, what's sitting in the plexiglass racks? And I always say, oh, we notice. We notice. LGBTQ plus people, we notice. Not to say other groups don't, but we are... Um, we lived for many, 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 many years in secrecy and in hiding and living in coded ways. Those are not the ways we generally live anymore. But oh, we still see a rainbow, expanded or not. We go look at that non-discrimination policy. We're going in and we're trying to assess, okay, with whom can I come out as trans? With whom can I introduce my partner or my, my same-sex spouse comfortably? Oh, we notice these things. We notice. So if you look at the HEI, the recommendations, first of all, say you need to have foundational non-discrimination policies in place. Now, these have been required by the Joint Commission since 2010. Advocates worked very closely with the Joint Commission. Not only have they required hospitals to have LGBTQ-inclusive non-discrimination policies, they've been surveying on it, and they also produced a wonderful field guide to LGBTQ plus people. I mean, with a wealth of information, many hospitals still I'm sure some of the folks listening to this will find this, include their own hospitals, don't have foundational non-discrimination policies in place, including close following on that systematic training around both communication and medical issues, LGBTQ plus people, and also may not offer transgender health coverage to all their employees. This has become much more common since the passage of the ACA, so-called Obamacare. But they may not have those foundational things in place. And then the HEI goes on to ask, what about your services? If you don't have LGBTQ plus specific services, and of course, as we discussed earlier, Vishal, transgender care, while proliferating, is 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 not a staple of of U.S. hospitals yet. Uh, certainly, the surgeries. If you don't offer services, do you have a designated patient navigator, someone who's just publicized to the patient, someone they can turn to if there's if there's been an issue, and whose staff can turn to, frankly, if there's an issue? Are your records inclusive? And then, are your LGBTQ plus employees who are such great ambassadors and informants and educators, are they being supported? Do you have a resource group for them? Are you offering them the benefits that you should? And finally, are you engaged locally with the LGBTQ plus community? That's one way of assuring people before they have a healthcare need, a dire healthcare need that's going to become inpatient. That's a way of saying we're a leader on the HEI. We support, you know, we're part of Pride. We have rainbows around our hospital. You know, Nobody's perfect, but we think you can feel pretty good about us as you have to go in with your healthcare need. Well, thank you for sharing. Uh, I'd love to pull from a 2018 American Journal of Radiology article written by Dr. Sawinski and Gunderman uh, entitled Transgender Patients, What Radiologists Need to Know. I think it's so easy to think that, you know, radiology is behind the glass. We're not seeing our LGBTQ patients directly. This is unlikely to affect patient but imaging is such a critical component of screening care and preventative health. When it comes to screening recommendations for transgender women, breast cancer care, nipple discharge, testicular cancer, prostate cancer, and bone density are absolutely paramount health issues where radiology plays a critical role. For transgender men, breast cancer, nipple health and discharge, endometrial abnormalities, and bone density all may remain, again, critical issues. And I also want to potentially pivot um, to an article written by uh, Anna Kirkland, Dr. Anna Kirkland in the New England Journal recently, 
entitled Physicians as Political Pawns, uh, focusing on the Texas Directive on Gender-Affirming Care and Other Moves. Shane, earlier you mentioned the Affordable Care Act. Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act forbids health care discrimination based on sex. And the 2020 ruling in uh, Bostock versus Clayton County held that discrimination based on gender identity or sexual orientation is essentially considered sex-based discrimination in the context of employment under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And the current presidential administration has concluded that this inclusive interpretation applies to 1557 as well. So essentially all covered entities, hospitals and health systems must avoid discriminating against LGBTQ patients. Now, despite this federal inclusion, we are seeing individual states taking up mandates against providing gender-affirming care. In, uh, on April 8th, 2022, Alabama Governor uh, Kay Ivey signed a bill that makes it a state felony to provide gender-affirming care to minors. On February 21st, 2022, Texas Governor Greg Abbott directed his Department of Family and Health or Family and Protective Services to treat essentially as child abusers all parents seeking gender-affirming care for their transgender children. Shane, uh, I know this is a challenging question, but for our healthcare providers, you know, those who have LGBTQ members in their family, their loved ones, who are living in these states, who are trying to essentially put on an assault against their identities, what can they do? How can they feel empowered in this situation when their individual values are not being supported by the systems in which they practice? Yeah, let me speak to all three of those very, very important questions you raised. To go back to uh, the article about challenges in radiology, which is really a great article, 2018, Dr. Sawitsky, I do want to point out again, it is often radiology, interestingly, as you can say, radiologists can feel like, well, you know, aren't we backstage? Actually, it is radiologists precisely because of imaging who will often learn that someone is transgender. Now, in this, in this whole conversation, we've been using transgender to mean people who are assigned a, a sex at birth and transition to another sex, just, just to be clear about that. Transgender is actually an umbrella term that co- can cover a lot of identities, non-binary, gender expansive, gender fluid, gender queer, gender nonconforming, et cetera. But here we are talking about people who transition. It will often be uh, a radiologist who learns, oh, what, what I'm seeing in imaging Am I seeing something that is at odds with the medical record or how my colleagues are, are you know, addressing and, and talking about this person? It, it, it is very interesting. It, it, just by definition, radiologists are in a position to learn transgender identity and to be models, you know, both in themselves and for colleagues about, oh, look at this. We may need to look at the records. We may need to go clarify something with the patient sensitively, sensitively, sensitively. So radiology, just by definition, can play a critical part in learning transgender identity and modeling how to correct records and how to do right by that patient. So I definitely want to 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 pull that out. You also mentioned the various non-discrimination policies and requirements. And I mentioned, of course, that in 2010, 12 years ago, the Joint Commission, the accreditor, the, you know, the, the much much feared and respected Joint Commission, aka JCO, required non-discrimination policies be, just before Section 1557 of Obamacare, before later uh, prohibitions on healthcare discrimination. There was the Joint Commission. There also was common sense and compassion, but. We have a, a real challenge in making sure that healthcare systems know that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, it is forbidden. It has been forbidden for a long time. A lot of systems just don't know this, although Section 1557 and the Joint Commission both heavily publicized the fact that there is this ban. What this points to is you can have a million policies, you can have a million well-intended bans, but unless you do education in a real way with actual healthcare providers, I actually am famous for saying, you know, in a, a paraphrase of Duke Ellington, policies, they don't mean a thing without that training, whether it's what you seek out for yourself or whether it's what's provided to you in continuing education or grand rounds and such at your hospital. We cannot afford, again, I think about the two wings of the bird. Policies are, you know, one wing. We've got to have education that really works. And I, what, I, what I think is critical here, again, is not just education in the abstract about the challenges and the disparities that LGBTQ plus people face, 
education that generates empathy for us, in which people really understand not just our, our health or medical needs, but who we are as people, what we're concerned about, what we struggle with, what we're scared of. Awakening that knowledge and that empathy, that's how people learn about policies and enact them. In terms of the recent legislation banning, even criminalizing in some cases, cure, gender-affirming care for youth, uh, yes, uh, there are obviously sectors of our society that have uh, gone on the offensive around or generally uh, transgender, gender nonconforming, non-binary folks, or, and certainly around uh, issues related to them, and now including gender-affirming care for youth. What I think is that physicians, healthcare professionals have a very special role to play, and that is that while there are LGBTQ plus groups and individuals who are conveying hurt and anger, tremendous, tremendous concern about these initiatives. I think a role that healthcare professionals can play, be they LGBTQ plus or not, is to step forward and say to the critics, some of whom are in need of education, some of whom might well change in view of education. We are healthcare professionals. We are here to understand your concerns, to hear them, to understand where you're coming from, and to provide you as healthcare professionals information that you can use, that you can rely upon. I think it is critical that healthcare professionals, to the extent possible, whatever rage they feel, whatever anger they feel, whatever indignation they very understandably feel about these initiatives, I do think that it's healthcare professionals can be very helpful in saying, hey, come sit down. You're a parent, you have, a, you have kids of your own, you're hearing about this, you're wondering about this, let's talk. In my educational work, I've always been guided by um, Gandhi's famous admonition, be the change you want to see. If we as LGBTQ plus people and allies, if we want our opinions and our feelings to be heard and respected, I do think, I do think even in these very, very hot hot situations, it can be helpful for at least some of us to say to people who appear to be well-meaning, genuinely concerned about the well-being of youth, sit down, let's talk, I'll listen to you, and I will give you a healthcare professional's response. I think if, you know, this is, you, you need both kinds of work with the public. You do need to express indignation. We absolutely do. It's not you, we do. But we also need to be educators. We need to be people who sit down and go, okay, you're concerned about this. Let me listen and address your concerns. It is that bedrock educational process in healthcare and in general that it's that bedrock educational process that has done so much to promote LGBTQ plus empowerment and equality in our country. Well, Shane, thank you again for your time and commitment to this work uh, and your role in educating me to become a better provider and hopefully human being. I'm particularly drawn to your comments about focusing on the youth and mental health. I know the pandemic has had just devastating effects on mental health throughout our country and the world. According to the 2015 U.S. Transgender Survey, 40% of respondents had attempted suicide in their lifetime nearly nine times the attempted suicide rate in the general U.S. population. I think for those of you who have LGBTQ in your life or identify as one, please, please make sure you reach out to know that you are supported, that you have support uh, within your social networks. Uh, and if, if you're looking for help, uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, Shane, I don't know if you have any potential resources or hotlines that those who are struggling with mental health may consider turning to or how they can get help? Yeah, let me mention a few key resources in various categories. First of all, youth, LGBTQ plus youth. And again, there may be, you know, other words, gender nonconforming, gender fluid, gender queer, gender different, non-binary. Youth who, who seem to you and, and or seem to themselves in need of support, the Trevor Project is critical. It is designed to be chat and helpline support for these youth. They're national. Again, the Trevor Project, there's a hotline number that can be used. Very, very important. Gender Spectrum 
is the premier organization in this country that works with the healthcare system, with parents of gender expansive, I'll just use that as you know an umbrella term, gender expansive kids, parents of kids and the kids themselves. Gender Spectrum has a host of really reliable, accessible, yet very savvy resources uh, on gender affirming care and support for youth. So I wanna be sure to pull out those youth resources. In terms of your hospital, if you're hospital-based, the Healthcare Equality Index is critical, as is the LGBT field guide put out by the Joint Commission. So those are hospital resources. In terms of educating yourself as an ally and the key health issues, the Fenway, which is one of the leading LGBTQ plus health clinics in the country, has two critical texts, uh, which are very accessible. One is on specifically transgender and diverse care, Fenway, Fenway Guide to Transgender and Diverse Care. The Fenway has also produced a second edition guide to LGBTQ plus people in general. So as a healthcare provider, that's where you're going to find really reliable health information. To be an ally, I strongly, strongly recommend parents, families, and friends of lesbians and gays. They have a special healthcare project. They also have, how, how can you be an ally in your life generally, not just as a healthcare professional, but as a person in the world? pflag.org. So those are, those are the various you know categories of resources that I'd pull out for people. I really appreciate your asking about that. Well, thank you, Shane. Uh, I Every time we speak, I take literally pages worth of notes. I can barely keep up with all the information <laughs> you have. I want to also thank you for your last uh, two years worth of effort towards the Society of Interventional Radiology GEMS program. You really helped us spearheading a session on optimizing LGBTQ care. Uh, and again, every year I, I learn something new. But thank you again for your time. And I want to thank Aaron Fritz and the rest of the CEO uh, or the Backtable podcast team uh, for giving us the opportunity to, to really center the conversation around LGBTQ care and health. Thank you so much. Shane. Oh, thank you, Vishal. And thanks to the Backtable crew. It's just a, always a pleasure to talk. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. And newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.